Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. My name is Aaron. I'm the youth director at New Day Community Church in Kalamazoo. I'm also on the team of teachers here at New Day. We have a rotating group of pastoral staff and uh, lay leaders who come and speak on a rotating basis. Um, How do I want to begin here? Let me begin by just saying worship was amazing. I I really enjoy worshiping with you guys down here. Um, I think sometimes in today's culture we, we equate lights and, and fog machines and big praise bands with the presence of God, and that's not the reality. Uh, the presence of God is where there are hearts that are seeking Him and that are hungry for Him, and that's the case here. I just want to bless that in, in all of you, that there's such a hunger for God, and I, I sensed it here, and I sensed the Holy Spirit in a major way, and was really blessed during worship, so thank you for, for worshiping with me this morning. I really appreciate that. So, um, so a little bit of news from our family, my wife and I, Adrian are having a, a child. If you haven't seen on Facebook yet, we're excited about that. So her first Mother's Day today. Happy Mother's Day, honey. Um, and, and we're super excited. We just found out the gender. We're having a boy. Uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. We uh, had the, the ultrasound last week, and we're, getting to, we're starting to understand already the personality of our little one. Uh, this little guy would not stay still throughout the entire ultrasound. He was moving around and shifting around, and it made it hard for the ultrasound technician to even get the images that she needed because the little guy was moving around so much. But uh, that may or may not have had something to do with the fact that she had some caffeine before going into the ultrasound. Um, I know that's a no-no. She decided to have some because she had heard that if you don't have, uh, if, if the baby falls asleep, uh, could cross his or her legs and don't know the gender. She really wanted to know the gender, so she had a little glass of Coke going in, and that really impacted the little one. He was, he's active. I think we're going to have our hands full when, when he comes in September. So. Um, so we're excited about having a child, but you know, there's also a little bit of fear, right? Um, I think that's normal to have fear as a first-time parent. You know, the fear of, of am I going to be a good dad, or is she going to be a good mom, are we going to be good parents? Are we going to be able to answer the hard questions? Are we going to be able to wake up at all hours of the night and morning with a crying baby? Um, will I be able to resist the uncontrollable urge to tell dad jokes? Too late. I already do that all the time. My wife tells me I'm already really good at dad jokes. Um, but there's also this other fear inside of me, and maybe it's less of a fear and more of just a, a really deep passion within me. And, and that's this. I, I want to be able to um, show my, my son how to follow Jesus well, how to become a faithful follower of Christ. But in today's world, being a Jesus follower is becoming more and more complex, more and more complicated, right? Um, I don't think that it takes a a sociologist or a researcher to understand that the culture is shifting, right? Shifting pretty dramatically and rapidly. And I'm I'm really, you know, there's a, a concern within me that will I be able to teach my child how to navigate the Christian walk in a rapidly changing world, a world that's becoming increasingly more and more antagonistic to the Christian faith. We feel like the ground is shifting beneath us and we're not sure how to respond to that. It's getting complicated to be a Christian. Yes? Am I the only one sensing this? Yes. Um, you know, right is being portrayed as wrong. Right, wrong is being portrayed as right. You know, there's this new American ethic that says there is no absolute truth. 
Truth is what you make it. Do you. Be you. Do what makes you happy. So I think that we're living in an, in a, in an exceedingly post-Christian world. The attitudes towards Christianity, the a- attitudes towards the church are changing a lot and quickly. Um, there's this book by David Kinnaman and, and Gabe Lyons called Good Faith that recently came out. And David Kinnaman is with the Barna Group, and the Barna Group does extensive research on the intersection of faith and culture. And they surveyed how Americans describe the church. And the two words that, that people use to describe the church in America today that absolutely leapt out from the data are irrelevant and extreme. The two words that people are increasingly using to describe the church today are irrelevant and extreme. Here's a little bit of the data. My clicker's working. Where am I pointing at? Okay. I've got data coming up here. So that, very important data for you all to see. I guess I could share the data without showing it to you, but I really like the idea of having it there when I say it. Changing culture. Click. Yes, 64 believe, you got it? Is it working now? Awesome. 64% believe that it's extreme for people to demonstrate outside an organization they consider to be immoral. 51% believe that it's extreme to protest government policies that conflict with their religion. 52% believe it's extreme to believe that sexual relationships between people of the same sex are morally wrong. And 60% believe that it is extreme to attempt to convert others to your faith, which is kind of the reason that we're here. 42% believe that people of faith are part of the problem in America today. And people are increasingly not only indifferent to Scripture, but they're feeling hostile towards the Word of God. The data also shows something that I don't think is going to be surprising to any of us, but it shows that people are increasingly identifying themselves as the center of their spiritual lives. That I am my own judge, I am my own jury, I decide what is right, I decide what is wrong, I decide what makes me happy, and my happiness is the center of everything, is the center of my spiritual life. And you might be saying right now, Aaron, wow, that, this has gotten really heavy really fast. This sermon has taken a, a really quick turn. One moment you're talking about your baby, now you're talking about the crumbling American culture. You're using your boy as a sermon illustration. He's not even born yet. He's going to have a great life, I'm telling you. But this is our new reality. So I want to be passionate. I want to be intentional in teaching my child how to remain faithful in a changing world. So today we're, we're continuing our series called Heroes and Villains. This is where we're looking at heroes and villains of, of the Bible, looking at some of the, the great stories in Scripture. And today I want to look at Daniel, because I think that Daniel can serve for us as a guide of how to live faithful in a changing world, how to live faithful in a world that is increasingly more antagonistic towards the way of Jesus. What I think that Daniel's going to show us today is that is how to be intentional in the tension of a changing culture. How to be intentional in the tension of a changing culture. And when we think of Daniel, 
What do we usually think of? Daniel the Old Testament. Boom. Daniel the lion's den. Maybe like this, right? Maybe we think of Sunday school. Maybe we think of flannel graph. Anyone remember flannel graph? One person, two people. Flannel graph was the best, man. Flannel graph seriously was the best. My mom was a hardcore Sunday school teacher. She was all about it, and she had all the flannel graph. All the flannel graph. She collected them all. Collected them all. She'd never let me cut them out. You only had to cut them out of the felt. Never trusted me with that very important duty. But my favorite thing about flannel graph is my mom would set it up Saturday night before Sunday morning. She'd get it all set. Maybe it's Jesus walking on water, and she's got it all perfect. And then when she'd leave the room, I'd sneak in there, and I'd put you know, a giraffe drowning in the ocean or Jesus riding a lion on the ocean. It was the best. I love flannel graph. But Daniel's an important story, right? Um, the idea that I will not back down from my faith no matter what the circumstance. I will not back down even in the, under the threat of being thrown in a lion's den. It's often used to say we need to raise up a generation of Daniels uh, who, who will stand up for the truth. And that is absolutely good and valid. And um, the Sunday school just last week in Kalamazoo was talking about that. But um, what I think we often tend to do is forget to set the scene for Daniel to talk about the years leading up to Daniel's lion's den moment. You know, we wouldn't have the Daniel of the lion's den without the Daniel of Babylon. And this is what my talk's going to be about today, is this idea of Daniel of Babylon. And setting the scene for you, the book of Daniel takes place during this, this time of exile for the Israelites. And God's people had been just defeated by the strong world power of Babylon. The Babylonians had, had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they had plundered the temple, taken a lot of the treasure from, from the temple of God and put it in the, the house of a pagan god. And they had taken many of the Israelites captive and, and talk, took them back to Babylon where they'd live in exile. Now King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had this idea that he would take the most handsome, smart, influential young Israelites and bring them into his palace and basically indoctrinate them to the Babylonian way, essentially to, to brainwash them, to teach them the ways of Babylon, the literature, the language, the culture, the pagan religion. And Daniel, who was probably just a teenager at the time, was one of these young Israelites. And suddenly Daniel and the other people of God are, are thrown into the society where everything is rapidly changing. Everything is suddenly different. Their religious customs, their traditions, their God are no longer welcome. So today I want to look at the first chapter of Daniel and pick out five lessons that he can teach us about living faithful in a changing world. And what I think we're going to find is that Daniel was able to walk this tightrope of being close to the culture, of partially assimilating to the culture, but being close enough to the culture to impact it and to not back down from his faith. Does this sound good? All right, well, we're going to start with Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility 
Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. All right, so here we see that, that Nebuchadnezzar is clearly trying to indoctrinate these young men to brainwash them into this new, this new lifestyle for them, teaching them the culture of Babylon and trying to force them to forget their former way of life, their, their God. And the, the, this is interesting. The subjects that Daniel would have been studying um, in Babylon included astrology, the study of animal entrails, sacrifice incantation, exorcism, and other forms of magic and mysticism. And we get worried about evolution being taught in public schools. Daniel and his friends are given some new names, too. And these new names are after pagan gods. Daniel is given the name Belteshazzar, which is after one of the pagan gods. And in our day, this would equate to the youth group being renamed Buddha or Muhammad. What I find interesting here is that there is no mention of Daniel resisting this. It doesn't mention him trying to escape no mention of him protesting or fighting it. He didn't see himself as a culture warrior yet. There's actually a level of, of compromise, right? Not in a bad way. Daniel is basically saying this. You can teach me whatever you want to teach me. I know what I believe. You can call me whatever you want to call me, but I know who I am. So Daniel wasn't offended by Babylon being Babylon, by the world being the world. He wasn't upset that a pagan culture would give him a pagan name. In the same way, maybe we as 21st century Americans shouldn't be offended when we are labeled or mischaracterized. Maybe if I'm being labeled irrelevant or extreme or bigoted, maybe I shouldn't be offended. Maybe I should show them the opposite through the way I live, through the way I love, through the words that I speak. So, Daniel also wasn't offended by Babylon teaching its language, its literature, its paganism. In fact, it seems that Daniel was eager to learn. In fact, it says later in the chapter that, that, God, had gave, that God gave knowledge and understanding to Daniel. And the king found Daniel to be ten times wiser than all the magicians, all the enchanters, all the learned people in the entire kingdom. So what we see here is that Daniel was actually embracing his education. He was actually engaging the culture. Not only that, he was redeeming his education. He was redeeming the culture because he was allowing God to shape his understanding. He was allowing God to shape his education. Um, the Word of God was informing his education, not his education informing his understanding of God. So he was bringing God to school, basically, as they say. So lesson number one that we can take from these first few verses, don't be offended by the world being the world. Lesson number two, don't be afraid to be close 
to the culture. Daniel was close enough to the Babylonian culture to be an influence. He was close enough to the culture to be dangerous, right? He never would well, this is my own belief, he never would have been able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, he never would have been in a position to have his lion's den moment without being close to the culture, without earning the respect and influence in his new world. Because this was completely different for him. This was a new world. It was much it wasn't rapidly changing. It already it was he came to a new world. So that's this is a good model for us. Um, let's continue in verse number eight of Daniel chapter one. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So we're already seeing that Daniel, he's a pretty extreme guy. I haven't met many teenagers who demand vegetables and water over wine and food and choice food. Um, But we also see here that um, Daniel in some ways was acclimating to his culture but he, he also knew when to take a stand. He knew how to pick his battles. Uh, and, he, and when he did, he did so in an honoring way. He didn't, you know, he didn't want to eat the food from the, the king's table, probably for a few reasons. One of those reasons might, might be that it, the food wasn't kosher against the Jewish law. It was likely that this food was sacrificed to idols, and he didn't want to in any, any way you know, put himself in that position of, of eating food that had been sacrificed. But I think Daniel also realized that this was kind of Babylon's way of bribing him, saying, look at all this wonderful food and wine that we have. Look at the, how great your life could be as a, a Babylonian. Forget your old life as a, as a tired and weak um, Israelite and join Team Babylon. But Daniel, he sees right through this and he takes a stand, right? But even in taking a stand, Daniel was honoring. He wasn't offended. He wasn't demanding. In fact, he posed this as a request. He said, let me eat vegetables and, and drink the water, and let me prove to you that, being, but that by being faithful to my God, he will come through for me, and I will show you a better way to live. I will show you a better way to live. That by being faithful to God, I will be rewarded. Lesson number three is to pick your battles, but to be honoring even in disagreement. And we live in a world where where arguments escalate quickly. Yes? Anyone have a friend on Facebook who likes to post 
really controversial, controversial articles just for the, the sake of, of starting conversation. And how quickly those get out of hand and escalate to all caps, yelling back and forth, name calling and such. There isn't a lot of room for, for, for civil discourse, for peaceful discussion, right? For example, if you don't agree with gay marriage, not only do I, I disagree with you, but I call you a bigot. On the other side, if you identify as gay, not only do I disagree with your lifestyle, I don't want to be your friend. You have to look no further than the presidential election today to also see that there's not a lot of room for peaceful debate and discussion. There's not a lot of room for disagreeing peacefully. But Daniel shows us a better way, right? He's honoring, he's respectful, but he's firm in his beliefs. And this is a rare trait in today's world, to be honoring and respectful, but firm in your beliefs. Returning to this Barna Group research that I said talked about earlier, um, this research also shows that a growing number of young Christians, millennials, guys in my generation, feel like they don't have a voice. 46% of Christian millennials say that they feel silenced. 47% say that they are afraid to speak up. This is a problem. Then there are those on the other side who are not at all afraid to speak up, right? And they are loud and they're angry and disrespectful and they think this is what it means to be a Daniel, to stand up for what I believe is to be as loud as I can possibly be. So I think that especially in my generation, the millennials, and whatever generation is to come next, anyone know what it is? There was a name for it, what I found out last week. But whatever the next generation is, I think it's going to be in I generation? Yes, the, I heard that it was called the I generation, like iPhone, iPad, iPod. Could also be that we're self-centered, I don't know. So with these two gen next upcoming generations, really, my generation is here. We're established. We're the ones that are leading now. But I think it's going to be incredibly important for us as, as a church to train them yes. to be able to defend their faith, but to do so with grace and with humility. And what does that even look like? Do we even know how to, sh to model that yet? So let's continue with verses 17 through 20 of Daniel chapter 1. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and an understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom. So here we see that Daniel relied on God to shape his wisdom, to shape his understanding. Daniel was being taught a lot of new information, right? A lot of new stuff was coming at him. Some of it might have been good. Most of it probably, probably was not. But through it all, he looked to God for understanding. In Daniel chapter 6, it mentions that Daniel prayed three times a day. Three times a day, he got on his knees. He was cultivating a deep, real relationship with God. He had to be able to hear his voice and be obedient to his voice and, and to allow that God's voice and his word to shape his understanding, because he's being presented with a lot of new information. And in being faithful, 
In pursuing God, in pursuing wisdom, God gave Daniel and his friends a lot of favor, a lot of influence. So lesson number four here is to turn to God for wisdom. And this is important, especially as we talk about young people who, who either are in public school or are going to go off to college. Um, it's really important to allow Scripture to shape our education and our understanding, to seek God as we seek learning. But it's incredibly difficult today in a world where we are constantly being presented with messages and with, with stories and, and, and with information that are in opposition to the gospel, that are in direct opposition to the way of Jesus. And what I've come to realize, and it's probably not a deep revelation for any of you, but I'm not going to be able to protect my son from messages that are contrary to Scripture. I won't. I'm not going to be able to protect him from having access to pornography. It's too rampant. It's everywhere. I'm not going to be able to protect him from being presented with humanism, secularism, materialism, any of the isms. Those isms will get you. They're everywhere. But what I can do is I can teach my son how to view his education, to view movies, to listen to music, to read books through the lens of Scripture. And I can encourage my son to engage with culture and know the messages and the stories that culture is telling us for this reason, to understand it and to speak to it and to show the world a better way. We're in a world that is, is increasingly more antagonistic of the way of Jesus, more antagonistic of what we believe. So it's more important than ever for us to, to, to cultivate real, intimate relationships with God. We can no longer, we never can, could, just call ourselves Christians, slap on a label and expect us to be able to follow Jesus well without, without putting in the work. I've been, I've been the youth leader at New Day for a couple years now, and one of my biggest goals has been to encourage the young people to develop a real relationship with God now. To, to, know, to know and understand His voice now. To obey His word now. Because when they go off to work, when they go off to college, they'll, they'll be embracing and they'll be around this changing world and they're going to hear a lot of messages that are challenging to their faith. They're already hearing these messages, to be honest. A lot, a lot of the young people I talk with are already struggling with, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus? How do I have a conversation with my gay friend and tell them that, that I don't agree with your lifestyle, but I still love you as a brother or sister? How do you do that? That's hard. We've got to figure it out. We have to figure it out to, to, to continue to be able to show the world a better way. All right, I'm going to keep moving. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was having these dreams that were keeping him up at night. So he called for astrologers and sorcerers and magicians to come and to interpret this dream for him. And he said, if you can't interpret this dream, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut you into pieces, and I'm going to tear your houses down to rubble. That's what I'm going to do. And of course, they can't interpret the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar calls for Daniel and his friends and says, Daniel, you need to kill these guys who couldn't interpret the dream. But Daniel says, no way. No, my, I can interpret the dream. My God can interpret the dream. 
And what is amazing about Daniel here is that he's willing to put his life and his reputation on the line for some sorcerers, and some magicians, and some astrologers. These were people that were against everything that Dan- or Daniel stood for, everything that he believed in. But he stepped in and he told the king not to execute them because my God can interpret the dream. Let me show you what my God can do. What love, what compassion that compelled Daniel to do this. And it makes me think, would we put our reputations on the line for someone different than us? An atheist, a Democrat, or a Republican, depending on what side of the aisle you land on? Daniel did this. And he also helped a wicked king. He interpreted a dream. He gave truth to a king that had captured him. This seems backwards to us. Daniel was helping the people that were supposed to be the enemy. These people had destroyed Jerusalem. They had taken all the treasure from God's temple and moved it to the house of pagan gods. These were people that were trying to indoctrinate him. But what we find here is that Daniel was committed to living faithfully and to creating a good life in a hostile land a land that God had called him to. And Daniel was committed not only to the good of himself and his friends, but he was committed to the good of the entire kingdom. And this is good because the prophet Jeremiah was urging the Jewish exiles to do just that. Now in in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, this this is a prophecy from Jeremiah to a people who had just had their city destroyed, who had just been carried off to a foreign land to live in exile, this is what Jeremiah had to say to this group of people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This seems backwards to me. You would think that the Lord would tell these people of exile to stand up, to fight back, to have their voice heard, to bring the kingdom of God here, to become culture warriors, to take, to take a stand against this evil kingdom. But the message from the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah was that you should basically live hard-working lives, to be faithful in a hostile land, to seek the welfare of your kingdom, Seek the welfare of Babylon to pray on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So often we tend to see the culture as the enemy, right? It's them versus us. But perhaps them is us. We are the culture, right? We are are, are here on purpose, We are called to engage with the culture, to speak truth to the culture, and ultimately to redeem the culture and make this place better, bring the kingdom of God here to where we're called. 
And we don't do that by isolating ourselves from the culture or alienating ourselves from the culture. So lesson number five from Daniel, and in my mind the most important lesson we can learn today, is to seek the good of your city, of your culture. And if you've heard me speak before, you know I like to give lots of practical examples. I'm not going to do that today. The reason I'm not doing that is because my hope for you is that you leave today and you think deeply about this. You get together with your families and your friends and you think about, what does it mean? What does it really mean? How can I practically live this out at home, in the workplace, at school, in my neighborhoods, in my city? What does it look like to live that out? What are practical ways that I can do that? And I invite you to join me, you know, as, as I raise our son that's coming, that you too would, would raise your children in such a way that we show them what it means to follow Jesus and recognize that, yeah, we're living in a changing world. But, it, but we can take hope in the fact that we have the message, we have the, the person of Jesus who is the answer to any problem we may face. So I invite you to come and to surround our young people and to show them how to do this. I invite you as a faith community to come together and talk about how can, how can we make Vandalia a better place? How can we make Three Rivers a better place? How can we make Cass County and Greater Michiana a better place? How can we impact the culture? How can we be close enough to impact the culture but not to take in any way, you know, compromise our faith? What does that look like? And, I, and I, I'm not sure I have an answer, but I'm committed to, to figuring that out together, right? Because, you know, Daniel, he didn't go it alone. He had his buddies, right? Radshack and Benny. Those three. He didn't have a big circle of friends, but he had a circle of friends. And, and we need to do this together as a community. We can't do it as, a lo- as lone rangers. We need each other to be able to, to do this well. That's the reality. We need to be hearing God's voice. We need to be coming together in prayer. I love what you guys are doing to come together and praying for our nation. It's important today. Um, but how can we play a role? You know, I'm not worried about who's going to be elected president. I'm not. Well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> Me. But when I think about God and when I think about the hope that the gospel message is, it brings me a lot of hope. It brings me a lot of hope because the church is the hope of the world. You know, we don't put our, our hope in, in leadership and figureheads. So... I hope this message has been encouraging. I hope it's been challenging. I know it's been challenging for me. This one's been on my heart for a while. It's been percolating for a while, and it's kind of come to a head now that we're we're having a kid. And I've got to show this young man how to follow Jesus well, and it's causing me to think deeply about these things. I just invite you to join me in that. So would you stand with me? Um, And let's just pray. Let's again commit our lives to, to following Jesus, even in this changing culture. Father God, we love you. We're thankful for this beautiful day. We're thankful for these beautiful people. We're thankful for this amazing community, God. We pray blessing upon this community. We pray pray unity upon this community. Um, God, I pray that as we come together, even right now, that you would knit our hearts together and that you'd show us what it means to follow you in a changing world. God, it's kind of scary. It's kind of... um, uh, overwhelming how fast our culture is changing and it feels like you know we can't keep up with all the changes but god we we put our hope in you we put our trust in you you are unchanging lord 
You are powerful. You are strong. We can lean on You in all circumstances. God, I pray that a spirit of Daniel would rise up in this place. That a spirit of Daniel would rise up in our hearts. A spirit that knows how to, to engage the culture, to speak to the culture, but not to be influenced and, and, and swayed by the things of this world. That we would keep our eyes squarely focused on You in the midst of a, a storm around us. And I pray that this church would serve as, as, a, as a beacon of light in a dark world. That you would use this church to change Michiana. That you would use this church um, to impact the culture. That it would become a church that would raise up young people that know how to follow Jesus, that know how to take a stand, that know how to be honoring and respectful and, and to engage with people that are different than them. And we, ultimately, God, we, we put our trust in you and we know that you are in control. In your name we pray. Amen.